Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Welcome back to another episode of Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Programme. Produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri Country. And we're broadcast across the continent on the Community Radio Network. I'm Shahrazad Blul, and welcome back. So, on today's show, we'll be delving into the intersections of dwelling justice since 1788, private land and the coloniality of housing, mainly through a discussion on the Bendigo Street documentary, which chronicles a campaign to occupy a street of long-term empty houses that were planned for demolition for the failed East-West Link Highway in Nam, Melbourne. But first, let's go to an excerpt of UN woman and architectural design activist Linda Kennedy speaking at the Dwelling Justice Forum held in Nam, Melbourne on August 26th this year. The forum brought together grassroots individuals, groups and activist scholars to discuss the links between ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration racial violence and poverty. The more that I was working within the architectural design space, the more I could see how these limitations in governance where everything is going back to a mainstream system are really limiting the ability for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have impact in that space while all the decision-making is still going back to non-Aboriginal people um, with values that are set within a settler colonial governance system. And that these limitations, it's not just having impacts for Aboriginal people, but for everyone. You know, some of the, I guess, the lens that I see that through is how, you know, design, in term, particularly for housing, but also in urban design in Australia, have been used as tools to control and assimilate Aboriginal people from the onset of invasion. Particularly, I think missions are the easiest way to understand how design has been used to control control us. But the nuclear household is also a really kind of stark example of how the, you know, the values and, and ways of living from, you know, the homelands of our invaders has had really significant impacts on our quality of life and also our cultural genocide in, in disconnecting us from the ways that we've lived for thousands of years and sustainably for thousands of years. And to say that the nuclear household doesn't, doesn't work for anybody, it's not just for Aboriginal people that it, that it doesn't work. So I've been working on my own projects back on my home country on the south coast in the Illawarra of New South Wales. We've got a you know reasonable size Aboriginal community. Like we've got two cities, Shoal Harbour and, and Wollongong. It's it's a complex, I guess, social history. Part of the displacement histories on the south coast are similar to other areas along the, the east coast of Australia, where Aboriginal people were moved off country into missions or reserves, but a lot of our family groups still have connection to country up and down the coast from the Sydney basin right down to where the Victorian border is, what we now know as the Victorian border. And I guess some of the, the biggest impacts from 
colonisation is the exclusion of Aboriginal people from decision making processes about country and working regionally. Like I think this is something that from a, a conceptual point of view we can understand, but what that means on the ground, I think is really important to understand at a local level and something that my interests or energies are being invested in at the moment. Uh, some of the issues that we have on country at the moment are around uh, this, you know, underground mining has been going on for since extractive industries have been the basis of the economic industry in the Illawarra since invasion. Beginning with cedar logging, like it took 40, only 40 years for the colony to extract all of the cedar from the escarpment in the Illawarra. Shell mining, uh, mining for shells off our shell middens, which um, for lime for building. So a lot of our shell middens along the coast have been destroyed very early on in invasion to support colonial building. The um, the railway that was built to get down to Port Kembla, where we've got a large port in Port Kembla, has really impacted the ability for water to flow from our mountains on the escarpment down to the to the lake to filter out to the ocean. These things continue today. You know the impacts that have been from the, you know, the early 1830s when white fathers were first coming down there, they continue today. And they also found the decisions that are made now in terms of future planning for our region. You can really clearly read in our you know, local and regional planning documents how the economic basis for our whole region is based on mining and conversations to stop this go through you know, our land rights legislation in New South Wales. I'm not sure how, how similar it is in Victoria go back to a system of lands councils, yet our lands councils are set within a system that's in a colonial governance system. So there are significant flaws when our position to have voice and power sits within a system that disempowers us from, from the onset. And our exclusion from the constitution is you know, the, the foundation of that exclusion from decision-making today. And that was Ewan Woman and architectural design activist Linda Kennedy speaking at the Dwelling Justice Forum held in Naam, Melbourne in August this year. You can find the links to all the recorded panels, keynotes and speeches on the 3CR website. And we'll have a link to a podcast version of the rest of Linda's speech as well as other notable sovereign keynotes from the forum on our website and in our show notes. These houses were empty still after two years in a homelessness and humanitarian crisis in Australia. And that was a campaigner featuring on the Bendigo Street documentary, which is about the housing crisis in 2016 which of course continues to this day. The campaign on Bendigo Street chronicles the occupation of 15 empty government-owned buildings that were transformed into homes during this time. So to find out more, we'll now be turning to a conversation that we had with Bendigo Street documentary maker Jasmine Barzani, who is a Kurdish self-described troublemaker in Nam. She's an anti-fascist, a prison abolitionist and a no-borders activist. And she's also completing her honours project at Melbourne University. I came to the street, I walked into an empty building and then I was not homeless. I have experienced a community in this street. I've 
being around people that have allowed me to be myself for the first time ever, um, without fear of violence. Today, for this episode, we're joined by Jasmine Bazzani. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, Sharazan. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Do you want to tell us um, what we just listened to? Sure. So we listened to Lucy, who was one of the participants of the Benigo Street campaign in 2016. She was squatting at number 24, which we turned into a all-women space, all like gender-diverse, queer, intersex, and women's only space. And... She was just talking about her experience of being on the street and how it was the first time that she actually felt that she could be herself safely because prior to that, Lucy had not come out as being transgender. She actually came out on the street. And prior to that, Lucy was actually living in an abandoned warehouse with no electricity, no water, no gas, nothing. Um, and yeah, she found out about the campaign, came down to the street and we were able to get her a house on the street. And then after that, when the campaign was coming to an end and the government kicked us out, she actually got her own place where she still lives right now. And Lucy is one of the stories that are in the documentary that you have, I guess, co-created with a bunch of people that were there on Bendigo Street. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the documentary is at the moment a 20-minute short documentary which tells the story of how one street made a demand for dwelling justice. So it was a campaign in 2016 that I was involved in and a bunch of other people were involved in, including people who were experiencing homelessness at the time, people who had a lived experience of homelessness, and also people from the Indigenous community, from the Wurundjeri community. It was really like, you know, multifaceted, diverse campaign with lots of different types of people involved. And we were able to take over about 15 government-owned houses that were just sitting there rotting away, not being used by anybody. And we maintained that occupation for about eight months. And through the campaign, we were able to get a lot of people housing that they didn't have before through negotiations with the state government. Um, and you've just mentioned dwelling justice. Um, I guess that's quite different from housing justice. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about that um, difference in the concepts? Sure. So for me, the difference between dwelling justice and housing justice is that housing is a colonial institution, right? So it's private property. It's like this individualized, isolated, uh, owned land, right, by individual people. It was something that was imported onto this land by European invaders that didn't exist prior to colonization. So that's the the the, the push away from using the word housing is a move to try to incorporate a form of justice that is about home and is about security of tenor that isn't replicating colonial ideas and colonial institutions such as private property and um, house housing ownership. We'll, we'll come back to, to this in just a minute, but I just wanted to ask you a bit more about the production of the documentary. Do, do you want to talk a bit about the way that you approached filming because I, th I think a lot of the time when we're thinking about media and the way 
that we film documentaries or things in general, there's quite an extractivist mentality behind it. Not for the fault of the person who's directing themselves, but because of the structures of the way capitalist media works. Do you want to talk a bit about, about that? Yeah, definitely. And it's a constant struggle. It really is because you're never going to be able to be pure in the way that you're producing media, right? It's always going to be tricky. And especially with a medium like documentary, it's an added layer on top of something like radio, you know, because anonymity is that extra level of more difficult, right? And especially as well, because you're, you know, you're filming like mise-en-scene, like you're filming at the time. It's not something that's just people reflecting back. It's not curated, you know, so there's that extra added level level of vulnerability of the subjects that you're filming. And to be honest, like at the time, like I said, I was really young. I was really naive. I pissed a lot of people off. Like people were like, who is this chick? Like, why is she filming everything? And is she a cop, you know? But I think being a part of the campaign and doing so much work outside of just filming really helped. Like a lot of people, when they film documentaries, they're just like coming in, you know, once a week for their like assigned 30 minutes. And then they're like, oh, catch us up with everything that's happening. Go on. And people are kind of like, oh, this feels a bit extractivist. It doesn't really feel like you're a part of us. But for me, the documentary was a side thing that maybe was going to happen one day. I was just filming in case, like I didn't have any plans. In my head, I was like, oh, I could make a prefer promotional video for Instagram to help the campaign you know what I mean and so then going back years later to do interviews people were like really you know open to it and I think when we talk about like decolonial epistemologies and like decolonial methodologies it is about centering indigenous people and there were indigenous people who were involved in the campaign but when we're talking about how do we do a decolonial way of knowing it's also about people who are involved in things telling their own stories rather than stories being told about us even if you're not indigenous like that's a decolonial way of doing knowledge and I feel like this documentary was a hundred percent that this was something that was building out our, our power rather than extracting stories from us this you know letter saying that you're now trespassing on private property by this time, a second house on the street had been gotten into and we were taking kind of celebratory photos from the balcony. That first evening, we decided we'd go pop in an, into another house down the end of the street, very lovely house. That was number two, Bendigo Street. We grabbed some couches from hard rubbish from around the street and set them up in the street and had pancake breakfast and were all milling about on the couches and people were rocking up and making food and sharing it with everyone. It was a really beautiful, electric and powerful um, atmosphere. It was great. So that was Kelly Whitworth from the Homeless Persons Union at the time talking about the first few days of the occupation and the atmosphere of Bendigo Street and what it was like. I wasn't actually there for the first day because I was at some hippie festival, but as soon as I came back, they had the first event, which was the screening of some films and some speeches. And I remember, yeah, being completely blown away. Like number two Bendigo Street was completely packed full of people 
all sorts of people, you know, people from public housing, socialists, neighbors, you know, people like people's faces who I recognized, people's faces who I didn't recognize. And the neighbors were actually on board with the campaign. You know, Adam Bant from the Greens had come down. And yeah, I think what was pretty crazy was that no one expected this to happen, right? It all sparked from one pretty bold, brave decision by a small group of people to occupy an unused house that was owned by the government in a public way. And people were like, it doesn't matter that it's illegal, you know, it's worth it, this is crazy, we're in a housing crisis, there's people, at the time I think there was about 257 people who had been counted by the city of Melbourne in this thing that they do every winter called the Melbourne Street Count, which is they go around and they count how many people are sleeping rough on the street. And, you know, the city of Melbourne is literally 10 minutes away from Collingwood. And in Collingwood on Bendigo Street, we had eight houses that were just sitting there that were owned by the government. And not only were they owned by the government, but the government had promised to give 20 houses to a social housing organization called Magpie's Nest. And we knew that these houses, a few of them were actually under the control of Magpie's Nest. And they made that promise six months earlier. So even though they had made that promise to give these houses to Magpie's Nest, the houses were still sitting there not being used. So I think the outrage that we had from that situation and then from that outrage, deciding to do something really bold and brave really paid off because everyone was really, really on board with it and it was a really amazing energy. People were like bringing food, bringing furniture. It was a really community spirit and it was really, really in a way life-changing for a lot of people to see what can be done by people just deciding to do something. And on that point, let's go back to this idea around um, dwelling justice and I guess the the founding of so-called Australia as a penal colony. So I guess there's always been that link between carceral carcerality, the idea of extraction and then and dwelling. So uh, do, you, do you want to expand on that and, and talk about that and how Bendigo Street is about that? One of the key people who was involved in the campaign was Uncle Larry Walsh. There was other mob who were part of the campaign, Uncle Ringo Terrick, uh, Uncle Frankie, and other Indigenous people, Ange Edwards, um, the late Tanya Day. And what they really brought to our attention, because at the start of the campaign, you know, we were not really highlighting that and that wasn't at the forefront of our minds. But what their involvement brought to us was an awareness of how every site in urban Melbourne is a site of dispossession and uh, land theft and it's an ongoing process and that part of the legal structures of criminal law, of private property law, of everything that constitutes housing and private property ownership and our idea of how we live in this society is a colonial institution and construct that is an ongoing way to dispossess Indigenous people of 
their land, uh, incarcerate them and gain access to their resources and the environment and, yeah, everything, basically. And those same legal structures that protect private property and made private property possible in this land are the same structures that incarcerate Indigenous people. So it's like part of the same system, it's part of the same process. Like incarceration is a form of getting access to Indigenous lands to appropriate their lands from their custodial ownership of mob to white possession. So that's a huge part of what the Bendigo Street campaign was about and it was also what the documentary is trying to be about as well. And yeah, like a really fun fact, for example, is that the Crown Land Unauthorised Use Act was an act that was established in the early 1800s, which formalised squatting, which squatting is basically living on a bit of land or living somewhere that doesn't belong to you and you're not technically legally allowed to live there. So that's what the definition of squatting is. So when European invaders first arrived on this land, they were squatting because they were squatting indigenous land. They were pretending like it wasn't indigenous land through the myth of terra nullius that, you know, this land belonged to no one. But soon after a while, it became clear that, no, there are people who are on this land and they were squatting. But they used the legal instruments at their disposal, which was backed by military, backed by guns, backed by prisons, backed by lethal force to make that legal. So they created this law that made squatting legal, right? So for a long time, there was this thing called a squatocracy in in this land, which was this elite class of people who are squatters. The elite class were squatters, which is hilarious, right? Because now what we have is that squatting is illegal because the people who squat right now are people who are poor, people who are marginalised, people who don't have access to secure housing. So it's just interesting how those instruments get used by people in power to reproduce prevailing power structures rather than something that you would think is about human rights or everyone's universal human needs like housing. A lot of the time, I guess, ideas around housing or, or a linked a linked to capitalism capitalism I guess the way we understand it today and the way it operates today would not have existed the way it does without colonialism do, do you want to talk about perhaps the the capitalist structures that we're seeing manifest today like you know discussions around social housing versus um you know, public housing, that sort of thing, and how that's linked to, to capital and also colonialism. At the moment, I think we have about 70,000 empty, unused properties in broader Melbourne, broader Nam, so-called Melbourne, and in and I think we have like 100,000 people on the public housing waiting list. Obviously, there's a system that is perpetuating this situation, right? It's not really about reform. It's not about, oh, let's get rid of negative negative gearing and that's going to solve all of our problems. Or, oh, let's introduce this idea called land tax and that's going to get rid of our problem. It's a 
thing that is built into the system because it benefits the small percentage of people who are in positions of power, who have the control of the means of production, who are people who own land, right? It benefits them because it's their investment property, right? And the small minority of people who are in this category of being in this position, you know, they're not just white people, right? They're majoritively white people, but they... It includes, you know, people of colour, some people of colour, right? So it's not about, oh, it's only white people that are benefiting from this, right? But it's the the idea of whiteness. It's the, it's the modernity, the idea of modernity, you know what I mean? The Eurocentric form of housing and political systems and economy, subjectivities, gender, sexuality, all of this stuff that was imported from European modernity, which is now the prevailing dominant power structure of the entire world, right? This is what we mean when we say whiteness. It's not just white people, right? And so that's how race and capitalism and colonialism, they are interlinked, right? Because Capitalism isn't just capitalism, it's racial capitalism, right? There's an aspect of it that perpetuates the prevailing racial power structures. It's It helps it, it benefits it, right? So that's how like race and capitalism are interconnected. Like there's a lot of other ways that they're interconnected. You know, colonialism and capitalism are also interconnected. But I think the important thing to remember is that you know, in all of these different ideas about the structures of power that exist in the world, like capitalism, colonialism, gender, I hate to use the word intersecting because it's overused, but they're they're enmeshed, right? So we can't talk about capitalism without talking about colonialism. We can't talk about gender without talking about colonialism. We can't talk about gender without talking about capitalism, you know? So they're just all interlinked, basically. And there's a few projects around that have the link between Dwelling justice and abolition, for example, and some other projects. Do you want to just uh, give us a lay of the land of the projects that deal with dwelling justice? Yeah, so at the moment, you know, there's the Pay the Rent campaign or organisation that exists, which is basically this idea of flipping the ownership of the land to sovereign owners. So you can pay your rent to Indigenous people. So you can do that through the organisation or you can just do it yourself. That's what I do. I don't actually go through the organisation by just giving regular money to someone that you know that you want to support. And then there's the Homes Not Prisons campaign, which is demanding an end to the expansion of all prisons, especially the DPFC in Nam, which is a local high maximum security prison, women's prison. And, yeah, they are also an abolitionist organisation, so they basically don't want prisons and police to exist. They think it's an illegitimate and unhelpful institution that causes further harm onto individuals and society. And they're asking for all of the funding that is planned in to go into the expansion of this prison to go into public housing instead. Cool. And if people want to get involved in your project, how can they do so? Well, at the moment, I have a fundraiser going, which is trying to raise funds to get the 20-minute project, the 20-minute film expanded to a feature-length film, 
which requires a, an amount of money. And there's going to be a few different screenings coming up, coming up of the short film. So if you want to come watch the short film and then decide after that if you want to help or if you know anyone who's got filmmaking skills, who wants to volunteer and get involved in the making of the feature length, just go to bendigost.com and you can email us there through the online form. So we have Instagram and yeah, a website and also the fundraiser is on the Documentary Australia Foundation website. Great. And we'll also have a link to the fundraiser on our show notes. Thanks, Jasmine, so much for joining us. And you are listening to filmmaker Jasmine Barzani speaking about the intersections of prisons, coloniality of land, dwelling justice, and a campaign that confronted all this in 2016. Jasmine is the filmmaker of Bendigo Street, which is a documentary highlighting this campaign. And that's all we have time for today. We'd love to hear any comments or thoughts you have about the program. So please send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across the continent on the Community Radio Network. We have funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music that we usually play on Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. And all our programs can be downloaded from 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Shahrazad Blue, and tune in again next week on your local community radio station. 